Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Well, welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I know I've been away for a little while. I took my wife to Hawaii and I was a little burned out before that. I'll tell you why. I have been commissioned by a publisher in the United Kingdom and a publisher in the United States to do a second revision or a revised edition, a version two, a V.2 of Anxiety Rx. So I spent the last six weeks or so before I left on vacation to rewrite about a third of the book. And I noticed there was a lot of things that I said in the book that were true, but I didn't explain them that well. So after the years since it's, years since it's been published, I've explained this so many times that I'm so much better able to really get to the crux of the matter to succinctly put into words what I really wanted to say in the book. And I noticed I was cringing a few times in the book, even though the book is good. Is good. I mean, I really like the first version of Anxiety Rx. The book is good, but I noticed, and I think this is true with anything that we, we do, is we, when you go back to something you did a few years ago, you think, oh, geez, I could have said that better. Oh, that's not what I meant. So I had a chance, thanks to these UK and, and, and US publishers, to really go through and do a revised edition of the book, which I'm really, really happy with. It gave me a chance to go through and really see what I wanted to say and also have the whole book connect to itself. What I noticed about the first version is that there was a bunch of kind of isolated points when I read through it again, and now I've pulled them all together. I probably changed about a third to maybe half of the book. I. I did quite a few revisions in the book that I'm quite proud of. So it's going to come out in August or September of this year. Hopefully that's what we're pushing for. And I think we can do that. And I'm really, really proud of version two. I think it's going to be so much clearer. I took out a, a few of the personal stories and I made it a little less repetitive. Although those of you who've known, I've responded to this before. When people say, oh, the book is repetitive, the book is repetitive because it's written that way. 
it's not written that way because I think you're dumb as a reader or that I'm a bad writer. I wrote it that way neurologically, neuroscientifically, because I know these old programs of anxiety, this victim mentality we have with anxiety are so deep rooted in us that you have to hear it over and over and over again to see another perspective or to absorb another perspective. And what I'd hoped is that the repetition would become bothersome because when it becomes bothersome, I kind of know you're getting it. My goal with that book is to make it so when you finished reading the book, you were changed. That's why the book is so repetitive in many, in many ways. Some people didn't say it was repetitive, but I wrote it that way because it comes from a very different place. It says the same thing, but in very different ways uh, on a, a body, mind, spirit level. It says the same thing, but in different ways so that you can grasp it and that it actually changes you. By the time you finish that book, you will have a brand new version or understanding of what anxiety truly is and how you can really treat it as opposed to just trying to fix your thoughts. So today, going through the book as I have and just seeing the ABC plus the reference to D, E, F, and G and H and I, which I'll talk about today, I'm going to go through the ABCs and take them a little bit further. So basically the ABCs are, are they go all the way up to I. So A is for awareness, B is for body and breath, C is compassion, D is discipline, E is ego, F is faith, G is gratitude, H is humor, and I is intention. And I'm going to go through each one of these briefly and explain what the book is really all about with regard to these things. Because of course, it's, it's the ABCs that are the, the key parts of it, the awareness, awareness that anxiety is more to do with your body than your mind. Your mind is just reflecting what your body feels. The emotions, the feelings in your body are reflected by your mind habitually. And your mind makes up things that are completely consistent with how your body feels. If your body feels like it's in survival mode or it's panicked, your thoughts are going to echo that unless you're aware of them, unless you become aware and say to yourself, oh, hey, my body's alarmed right now. My mind is anxious because my body is alarmed. And if I know where the alarm is in my body, I can actually put my hand over it, breathe into it, feel it, recognize that that alarm in my system is probably a vestige from my younger self and see if I can feel that in my body and my breath. So I go from awareness that anxiety, what we call anxiety, is much more to do with this alarm that's stored in our body, typically from old unresolved childhood wounds, and then going from there into our body and our breath, rather than staying in our heads. Because if we stay in our heads, we'll get the same story we've always given ourselves and we'll go down the same pathway over and over and over again. And then we potentiate it. Potentiation is a term we use in neuroscience that means the more you use that pathway, the stronger it becomes. So the more we worry, the more we're going to worry. The more it, it becomes a way of, of getting out of the uncertainty. I've said that before. Worry is a way of making the uncertain a little less certain. Now, we pay a real price for that because in worrying, in making the uncertain a little more certain, that pressure I have in my chest is a heart attack or the dizziness that I'm having is a stroke. When we do that, we make the uncertain a little more certain, but we pay a huge price for that. 
and we potentiate those worry pathways. We start believing on some level that the worries are helping us. Because if you look at the dopaminergic structure of the brain, when we feel like we're on the right track or we've made certainty out of something that was uncertain, we get a little dopamine hit. So that's one of the reasons why worry is so addictive because it does secrete dopamine. It makes the uncertain seem a little more certain. And in that, it provides us with a little sense of relief because we worriers hate uncertainty almost more than anything else in the world. So we'll do anything to avoid the uncertainty, including worry. So that becomes a pathway. It becomes a defensive adaptation that we use as children to avoid a circumstance that we couldn't get out of. Because as a child, if you have an abusive or an addicted parent, you can't escape that. That's uncertainty that you're kind of held there. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But what I'm trying to show you as an adult, that you're not a child anymore. You can actually choose differently. But we have to show you the right neurological pathways to do that. Because you can't just say, hey, think positively and your anxiety will go away. And that's true. It will work for about three or four seconds, but then it's right back again. So you're kind of playing ping pong with it rather than dealing with the underlying cause. And that's really what the ABCs are all about. So going back, A is for awareness. Awareness of what anxiety feels like in your body. What does anxiety feel like to you? And knowing that that anxiety in your body, for me, it's in my solar plexus. For some people, it's in their heart. For other people, it's in their throat. Where is it in your body? When you feel anxious or what I like to call alarmed, where is that? Where do you feel that? Because it's really important to find it in your body. There is a part of our brain called the insular cortex, which kind of mediates the mind to the body and the body to the mind. And I do believe that that insular cortex holds a program for us worriers that promotes this sense of alarm in our body. And if we can find it, we can find that alarm in our body, put our hand over it, breathe into it, acknowledge it. Because really, that alarm in our body is our younger self. It is the younger version of us that was abused, neglected, abandoned, lost, rejected, had to mature too early, or was shamed. That is that younger version of us. And if we can use our neurology, we can use that insular cortex, if we can use this part of our brain that allows us to connect with the real source of the problem, rather than dancing around trying to fix our worries, we have a much better chance of healing from anxiety rather than just coping with it. So going back to the beginning, A is for awareness. This is in my body. It's not so much in my mind. And then B is go into your body, go into your breath. Instead of going into your head, you're never going to find the solution in your head. It doesn't happen. But you will find some sort of peace in your body. And when you calm your body, you regain your prefrontal cortex. You regain the rational thinking part of your brain. When you're in survival mode, when you're in alarm, you shut off the rational part of your brain. And when you shut off the rational part of your brain, you're unable to see that those worries are unreasonable, that they're not actually going to happen. So when you go back into your body and your breath and you settle into that, you regain your prefrontal cortex, you regain your rational mind, and you get to see, hey, you know, this worry really isn't anything to worry about, for lack of a better term. And then when you ground yourself in your body and you can give yourself a compassionate connection, this is C, awareness A, body and breath. So when you feel alarmed, be aware of that. 
go into your body, get out of your head, go into your body, put your hand over the alarm, breathe into it, and just give yourself this compassionate connection for yourself today and for the child. See if you can see yourself as a child. See if you can see their eyes. See if you can see what they're wearing. See if you can really connect with that child that's in you. Because that's the source of your anxiety. Ultimately, that's the root cause of your anxiety is this child who experienced a trauma that was too much for them to bear. And again, it doesn't have to be a huge trauma. Most of us warriors, in fact, all of us warriors, were born sensitive people. And it doesn't take a lot of trauma to fire up that sensitivity. So it's becoming this passion, compassionate connection to this young being that's still in us and ourselves today, being compassionate to understanding that this was a coping mechanism. This worry, this going into your head was a, was a coping mechanism, was a defensive adaptation to your situation as a child. And understanding that the compassionate connection with that child, breathing in with them, seeing their eyes, closing your eyes, staying with them, staying with the pain of that alarm and seeing it as connecting with that younger version of you that didn't get seen, heard, loved, and protected. So it's your job now to see, hear, love, and protect that child in you in a way that they didn't get back then. And I think that's really important to, to give the child that didn't get that love and protection back then, give it to them now. We can change our neural wiring. Our brains are quite plastic. But if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, if we keep defaulting into worry over and over and over again, that will become our coping strategy that we'll use for the rest of our lives. And we will be anxious for the rest of our lives. And this requires discipline. This is what I was talking about early on in this podcast today is that it's very difficult to just try to change your thoughts. It's so difficult to just say, think positive, think positive, think positive, because it's not really how we're wired as human beings. So what we need to do is we need to discipline ourselves to not get sucked into our worries because it's very seductive to be sucked into your worries because as a child, this had the appearance of working. This had the appearance of helping you. So when something helps us as children, we tend to stick with that until the wheels fall off. But the problem with that is that we're trading one pain for another. We're trading the slight lowering of our alarm when we worry about something. And I know that makes no sense, but there is something in our brains that feels comforted, probably isn't the best word, but feels familiar with that worry. And in that familiarity, there is some sense of comfort. So that's why we go back to worry over and over and over again. What I'm saying is the difference between A and B and C is that the awareness is I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling alarmed. Okay. Dr. Kennedy says, when I'm feeling this way, I have to find this in my body. There's no point in staying in your head because you've lost your rational mind anyway. Survival mode shuts off your, your cortex. So you can't think anyway. So why are you trying to think your way out of a feeling problem? It doesn't work. So find it in your body. Put your hand over it. Breathe into it. Then find, find the child that's behind it and show them that they're seen, heard, loved, and protected. 
that's all the child wants. And when you, when you soothe them that way, you actually solve the root cause of the alarm in the first place. And if you solve the alarm, there's no need for the mind to create these worries all the time because the alarm is the ultimate source of your anxiety. The alarm in your body, stored in your body, is the ultimate source of your anxiety. So if you deal with that straight on, you're going to be much more effective than just trying to change your thoughts. Now, changing your thoughts does help. I'm not saying that cognitive therapies aren't helpful. I'm just saying they will only help you cope. They will not help you heal. So discipline, just maintain the sense of discipline that when you get anxious, or as I say, alarmed, that you go into your body, discipline over and over and over again, create a new pathway. And you have to work at this with discipline because the go-to for you, you've defaulted to worry probably for your whole life so far. So you have to discipline yourself to go into the sensation of your body, even if it's uncomfortable, because it probably will be uncomfortable. Because the alarm is uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable to get your attention. The child in you is trying to get your attention with this alarm and you're ignoring it. You're going off into an addiction or a medication or a distraction. And if we understand that that's what we're doing as a coping strategy, medication, addiction, distraction, instead of just staying with the pain, staying with the discomfort. Now, sometimes the pain is just too great. If you've had emotional, physical, sexual abuse as a child, this is very difficult to do on your own. So this is when you really need to find someone, a therapist, a qualified therapist, somebody who understands internal family systems or somatic experiencing, or someone who really understands the somatic element, the body element and anxiety. And then discipline yourself that you're going to go out of your head, even though, even though there's an addiction, don't worry. There's this compulsion to go into your head because as a child, as I said, there was this sense that worrying distracted you or worrying took you away from the pain. Now, as an adult, it's time to go back to the pain because you can actually resolve the pain now in a way you couldn't back then. So becoming very disciplined to bring yourself into your body is so critical, which brings me to E. So awareness, body and breath, compassion for yourself, compassionate connection with yourself, discipline yourself to go into your body rather than your mind, and then E is for ego. Ego is going to be your biggest saboteur in this because your ego believes that worrying is what kept you safe. Your ego was incarnated when you were just a child. We had to create this almost mythical, magical, I call it a dragon figure, ego dragon, to protect us from the pain. So your ego is going to try and pull you back into whatever worked for you in the past, which is going to be worrying. So the ego is not our enemy. Ultimately, the ego is trying to help us. Ultimately, the ego is trying to keep us safe. But it does it in the only way that it knows how, which is pulling you back into worry. So the seduction to worry is so powerful. And that ego dragon is trying to pull you into worry over and over and over again. And I, Dr. Kennedy, am trying to pull you down into your body. And the ego is trying to pull you up into your head and worry. And those two forces are probably the biggest forces that block your healing. And just understanding that the ego isn't bad. It's just trying to go back to what helped you in the past or what it perceived helped you in the past. So that ego is, is your biggest obstacle in healing 
Because sometimes it's not safe to feel safe. If you felt safe as a child and then all of a sudden the roof came off the house, your father had a drinking binge or your mother had a screaming fit or whatever, whatever happened to you as a child, your brain learns through conditioning that trusting safety isn't trustable. Because when things were safe as a child for a while, there was always this catastrophe that would happen. You know, mom would get drunk or dad would get abusive or whatever. There was always, the end of safety was always catastrophe. So our brains think, well, there's no point in actually trusting safety because it ends in this huge upheaval. So we have to start retrusting safety. We have to retrust our safety through our body. We have to start learning that our body is a safe place. We can make a safe place in our body. And this is how we heal. We heal by creating this safe place in our body. And again, if you've had significant abuse, then you need someone probably to help you through this. This is where psychedelics come in. This is where, you know, uh, somatic experiencing or a therapist really can help you. Because that ego is always going to try and drag you back up into your head, drag you into your worries again, because it perceives wrongly that the worrying helps you. And maybe it did when you were a child. Maybe it was the only thing that you had was to escape up into your head, to dissociate up into your head. But it's not there. That's not the case anymore. You have agency. You are not a victim. And I've done that in previous podcasts about talking about victim. I haven't met anybody, including me, who suffered from anxiety, who didn't see themselves as a victim. Maybe not consciously, but unconsciously. And that victim mentality is what the ego feeds on to pull you back into its old coping strategies. So it's really being aware, once again, going into your body, creating that connection with that younger version of you, disciplining yourself that you are going to go into your body rather than be sucked into the worries of your mind. And then we go to F, and F is faith. Faith is one of those things that I think when we get traumatized as children, that we lose. We lose faith in the world. We lose faith that someone's going to be there to help us. And the flip side of that, and probably the most damaging side of that, is that we believe at that point, if everything is up to us, then we are the sole arbiter of, of everything. And if you believe as a child that everything is up to you and you're a child, I think that's going to create a tremendous amount of anxiety and alarm in your system. So creating faith, and this is kind of what I do now when I get a worry, is I just say, I'm going to have faith that this is going to work out. I kind of look back on all the times in my life that I was completely freaked out, which was thousands, and saw that it all worked out. But again, that's a bit of a cognitive thing. I really want you to develop this sense of faith just in the world. And I know that goes against your fundamental victim nature on some level if you've had chronic anxiety. But it's really learning that the world is actually a safe place. It's only your perception that keeps you going down that worry highway. It's only the perception that things aren't trustable and I have to do everything myself that makes you worry and worry and worry and believe that you can fix your external problems with internal worry because you can't, it doesn't work. But the ego will tell you that you can't have faith. 
You have to stick with worry. You have to stick with what you know, what was familiar to you as a child. Because here's the thing about the word familiar. The word familiar can be broken down into two words, family and liar. So if you were traumatized as a child by your family, your family teaches you what's familiar is trauma, abuse, neglect, abandonment, rejection. But just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's safe. But unfortunately, in human beings, we equate familiarity with security. So if you grow up in a traumatic environment, the word familiar can be broken down into family and liar. So it's really important to understand that, that faith is just something you can close your eyes and just have and just release. Because I want you to get out of your head. I want you to get into your body. I want you to feel the sensations in your body, even if they're painful. Breathe into them. Put your hand over them. Reassure yourself, am I safe in this moment? If you have to think something, think that, am I safe in this moment? And just stay with faith and leave it to faith and realize that you don't have to do everything yourself. And in fact, you've never done everything by yourself. There's always been something there. And the fact that you're listening to my podcast, the fact that you're reading my book shows me that you have the, the propensity to have faith, to have faith in something. Now, I know for me, it was really difficult to have faith because I tried every kind of therapy. I'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on therapy and none of it really worked. It helped a bit, but it didn't really work. So having faith is difficult for those of us who've had trauma, whose parents have let them down. And I don't mean, you know, beat them or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of us sensitive people who, who our parents just really didn't recognize the imperative of our sensitivity. They didn't really see a way of helping our sensitivity. They knew that we were ADHD or ADD or whatever. They could see that and they would rely on mental health or health professionals to help them, which don't understand like most Medical doctors have no clue of this theory of anxiety that is mostly in your body and secondarily in your mind. So faith, just having faith is so important because it develops this safe place in your system that you can go to. Because as a child, you never had a safe place. There was always that waiting for the other shoe to drop. So now you can actually create that safe place, but it's not your neurolo neurological system is not going to accept that overnight. It takes practice. It takes discipline to stay with your body, especially if it hurts. So faith is one of those things that I think you can use on any worry, any worry at all. You can just have faith, leave it up to the universe. As flaky as that might sound, leave it up to the universe. You don't have to solve everything because that's a childhood program. That believing that you have to solve everything because your parents really let you down. And once you have trauma as a child, you lose faith in the world and you, you lose the, the muscle for faith. The muscle for faith atrophies. So what I'm trying to get you to do is go to the gym, go to the faith gym and start building up your sense of faith because it's one of the most powerful antidotes to worry. And I talk about that in the book and I talk about it more in the second edition of the book as well. Now we've gone awareness, body and breath, compassion, discipline, ego, faith, and now we go to gratitude. Now gratitude is one of those things that gets bounced around the internet like crazy. You know, it does seem a bit kind of Pollyanna, like, oh, all you need is gratitude and gratitude will save you. But I'll tell you, 
what gratitude does is it shifts the direction of your neurological system. So we come from a victim mentality when we get into alarm and anxiety. And anything that moves the other direction is helpful. It's like that story I put in the book about the man who hits himself with a hammer all day. And someone walks up to him and says, why do you hit yourself with a hammer all day? And he says, well, because it feels so good when I stop. So any change in direction, and that's what gratitude does. It, tra- it changes your neurological system. It changes you to be in a place of activity rather than passivity. Passivity is going into worry, defaulting into worry. That's what we do. And if we move the needle the other direction, if we go into gratitude, what am I grateful for? And even being grateful for your breath in this moment, even find something. And I know this sounds very simple, but it basically changes the direction that your neurotransmitters are going in, that your brain, your neurological system is going into this victim, fear-based mentality. And as soon as you put gratitude in there, you turn the bus around. You change the direction of what's happening. And again, this takes practice. And, you, and your ego is going to kind of pull you back into worry. So it is one of those things that, that, you know, having faith and then having gratitude on top of that allows you to move in the other direction. And it shows you, and it shows the child in you that you can see yourself, hear yourself, love yourself, protect yourself, and just be with yourself, even being with that pain, being with the pain that that child went through, the child that still lives in you. If you have faith and gratitude, you start showing that child that there's a, there's a safety, there's a, there's a safe beach, there's a safe place to go where there wasn't when you were a child. So having gratitude for even the smallest thing changes the direction of your neurology. It moves from this passive fear-based place to this active love-based place. And you'd be surprised at how much that works. And there's a reason why gratitude is all over the internet, because it works. But again, if you believe that everything is up to you because you were traumatized as a child, having gratitude is going to rub up against that a little bit. So it creates this resistance. So being aware of your resistance to just being safe when it's not safe to feel safe is one of the chapters in my book. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest obstacles to healing is because we don't trust safety. We worriers don't trust safety because when it was safe when we were a child, that all got blown up. So we think we might as well keep ourselves in this hypervigilant ready state because we believe that that will help us. But basically all it does is tire us out. And what I'm trying to do with the ABCDEFGHs is show you there's a different pathway that you can take. And this is what I elaborate more on the second edition of the book is showing you more about how this pathway works and how you can potentiate, you can use this new pathway. And the more you use it, the more it becomes the default pathway. But again, there's discipline. We need to discipline ourselves. And again, there's ego. Ego is always going to pull you back into the worry. That's the biggest thing. When I get people feeling better from anxiety after 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes 60, 70 years of anxiety, they don't trust it because they haven't felt it before. So they don't trust peace. So it takes a little while to trust peace. It's like when you go on a vacation after you've been working really hard, the first three or four days, like you're still kind of in that mode. And then around day five, day six, this is what it is for me. 
I start looking at the world in a very different way. And I start seeing that I'm looking at the world in a different way. Usually when I was a practicing doctor and really burned out, these two-week vacations, one week wasn't enough because I never really hit that point. But after two weeks, I would start looking at the world differently and I would actually make changes when I got home. So what I'm coming back to is that for us warriors, feeling safe doesn't feel safe. So when I start helping people feel safer, it actually brings up that ego and that ego rises up and tries to push you back to where you were. But you can, using faith, using gratitude, using your body, using your breath, you can start creating a new pathway. You can stop hitting yourself with the hammer and create this new pathway. But it requires discipline, doing it over and over and over again. And then once you start feeling safe, feeling safe, this is what it was for me. Once I started feeling safe, feeling safe, and I can even remember where I was at the time, it's like this safety thing is actually okay. And there was this huge feeling of, of like a, people say the weight on your shoulders. That's kind of what it felt like was, I don't have to stay vigilant all the time. I don't have to look at the world as an unsafe place. I can have faith. I can have gratitude. I can even have gratitude for the pain because the pain in my body directs me towards that younger version of me that needs my attention, that needs to be seen, heard, loved, and protected. That's what alarm does. And when you see, hear, love, and protect that younger version of you using these techniques, you start creating this safe place in you. And it creates this sort of infinite sense that, oh, okay, I guess I am safe. I guess I can trust safety. And your ego will scream at you and say, no, you can't. No, you can't. But you can. You can. So that's gratitude. Now, H is humor. Humor and play. Humor and play. So humor and play activate the parasympathetic and the sympathetic system at the same time. There's very few things that actually activate the parasympathetic, the rest and digest system, and the sympathetic fight or flight system at the same time. Play is one of those. Contact sports is one of those. But just play in general activates the rest and digest and the fight or flight at the same time. You know what else activates parasympathetic and sympathetic at the same time? Trauma. So when you were traumatized as a child, if you didn't know what your dad was going to do or your mom wasn't coming home when she was supposed to or whatever, both of those systems, fight and flight and rest and digest, get co-activated. They're activated at the same time. And it's a very uncomfortable state and a very confusing state for our nervous system. So when you co-activate in play or humor or laughter or tears, tears do this too. There is this sense that, oh, this is uncomfortable, but I can handle it. I can handle this. And play gives you that sense that it's okay to have the both systems, parasympathetic and sympathetic, active at the same time. And you can start metabolizing that old pain, that old body memory, that old implicit memory when the rest and digest and fight or flight both got activated when you were young in, an, in a situation where you couldn't move from, you were helpless. Now you can move in it. And I think this is one of the reasons why exercise is helpful, but in general, just play. The more you can realize that having co-activation of those two systems is safe and okay, the more you start teaching your body that it is safe to be safe. 
because that's where we're going. That's how you heal. When you finally realize that it is safe to be safe, you don't have to worry. You don't have to maintain this hypervigilance all the time. It's safe to be safe. And you can have faith in that. And you can be grateful for that. Now, the last one is intention. I just added that today because I thought the I would be interesting. But when we make an intention, we move out of the unconscious automatic default stage, which is typically to be hypervigilant and worry. And we make the intention to do something differently. So we make the intention to have faith. We make the intention to play. We make the intention to have gratitude. Then we feel like we have some agency in our world. Whereas a lot of times we will default back to that time in our lives, typically in childhood, where we didn't have any agency in the world. We felt helpless and powerless. And of course, the ego jumps in and makes us worry. So creating intention, affirmations is another one, but intentions are one of those things that really help us change from this unconscious, fear, fearful being into this conscious, consciously fearful, you know, to, to make a bit of a joke. If you're aware that you're afraid and you can do something about it, that's a big deal. If you're afraid and there's nothing you feel you can do about it, that just creates more fear. So creating the intention behind gratitude, creating the intention to have faith and trying to couple that with emotion, with a feeling of agency, a feeling of power, that you're not a powerless child anymore. You have power now. You can create the intention to have faith, even in, in circumstances that seem unwinnable. You can create faith in that. You can have gratitude even when you're feeling sad, even when you're feeling depressed. You can, you can feel grateful just for your breath. And you're teaching yourself, I actually have agency. You know, Young said, when you make the unconscious conscious, well, his, his quote was, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and, and you will call it fate. But when you make the unconscious conscious, when you start creating a conscious intention, excuse me, you start controlling your life. You don't have to be hypervigilant hyper if you feel you have some control. Now, the flip side of that is when you're younger, you believe everything is up to you. But with intention, you can make the intention to receive from other people because that's another thing. It's another podcast, I suppose. But one of the reasons why we have lost faith in the world is we can't receive. And I did a podcast on that recently, but the short version of, of that is when you learn how to receive from other people and yourself, you can start balancing out your nervous system. You can start to heal. But one of the main reasons I see people not healing from anxiety and alarm is they just can't receive. They can't receive a hug even. They're, they're, they're edgy. They're, they're, they get stiff when you hug them. Or you give them a gift and they're uncomfortable. You know, one of the problems with anxiety is it makes us very resistant to receiving. And if you're resistant to receiving, you start feeling like the, the world is just taking from you all the time. Now, I know I'm branching off here, but I think the most important part is learn how to create intention. Learn how to match emotion with attention, which is, this is beyond affirmations. This is actually what's specific to me. What do I want? Can I create more faith in my life? I have the intention that I'm not going to worry about this. I'm just going to have the intention that this is all going to work out because I'm going to have faith. I'm going to leave it to faith because I can't fix it. I don't have the power to fix it, but I will leave it to faith because faith will 
on some level see me through if I believe in it. If I don't believe in it, then I'm back into that passive, um, unable to really allow myself to live. Because I remember seeing a psychiatrist years ago and he said, you know, Russ, it doesn't seem so much that you're afraid of, of living. No, no, this is a, sorry. It's not so much that you're afraid of dying. It's you're afraid of living. And it's true. I think I was afraid of living because I had to be hypervigilant all the time. And I think once you learn that you can have faith, there is something outside of you that can protect you, that will protect you. But you have agency. You can make intention. So just to review, A is for awareness. Be aware that when you feel anxious, when you catch yourself in worry, you have to move into your body and your breath. Find that place of alarm in your body. Put your hand over it. Breathe into it. Breathe in essential oil, whatever you have to do. C, compassionate connection with yourself and the child in you. Find that child. Show them they're seen, heard, loved, and protected. This takes practice. It doesn't happen overnight. But discipline yourself to go into your body instead of your mind. Because your mind, you can't think your way out of a feeling problem. Ego is E. It will always try and sabotage you back into worry. So the antidote for that, antidote for that is to have faith. To have faith that the world has had your back so far. It's, it's going to help you. And the more you believe that it's going to help you, the more it will help you. G is for gratitude. Be grateful for the pain because it does create a place of connection with the younger version of you. And having an attitude of gratitude changes your neurophysiology. It moves you from a passive victim state into an active state. Humor, you know, having humor, laughing, playing, playing, that co-activation of parasympathetic and sympathetic creates this place where before it felt like trauma and now it feels like life. And create the intention. Create the intention to have these things. Create the intention to have awareness. Intention to go into your body. Intention to, to be compassionate and, co and connected to yourself. The intention to have discipline that you're going to go into your body instead of your head. The intention to see your ego not as your enemy, but as, as a friendly dragon that's trying to help you. Intention to have faith in the world. Have faith in the world. The, the world will come up to protect you if you let it. Have faith and gratitude. Have intention to create gratitude. Have intention to play. Have intention to laugh. Intention to cry. Create intention in your life. And it takes you out of that default state that you learned as a child that you had to worry. That's it for this week. Look out for the book as it comes back. Sorry, I have been three weeks off, but I've been finishing the second edition of the book and then going on a well-needed holiday. And I really, really appreciate you, you guys listening to me. I really, really do. Because I have this, this urge to show what I've learned about healing from anxiety because I know the mainstream therapies aren't doing it. They really, really aren't, although they say they are, but they're not. And that's why I created the second edition of the book. That's why I do this podcast. I really want to help you move out of this anxious, alarmed life that you might be living because I've been there. It almost killed me. And my passion is to show people that there's another way of living. My passion is to take what the pain that I suffered at the, at the hands of my father, not by intention, just because he was so mentally ill and create that and put that into change in the world for the better. So thanks for listening to my ramblings. Hopefully I'll be back next week. 
and we'll see you then. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on The Anxiety Rx podcast. <laughs>